So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really insightful and it makes me think about why, why do people, why do leaders hire consulting firms? You know, what, what problem are you solving, right? What, what do you, what is it being achieved? Usually they ask me for a strategy or they'll ask me for, you know, you have contractual deliverables. But one of the things I think that leaders value is, you know, the there's no bureaucracy in my company once we get a problem to solve for a client, right? We put the client in the center of it. We ask them a set of Socratic questions. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Daniel Forrester. Daniel, thanks for making time. Yes, pleasure. Thanks for having me, man. So you've done some interesting things in life. First, why don't you tell us a little bit about what your consulting firm does and then tell us the premise of this new book coming out. Wonderful. My consulting firm that I currently work at, I'll step back, I'll I'm a lifetime consultant, if you can label me that. I've been working in and around the edge of technology, culture, and strategy for a long, long time. I cut my teeth at a wonderful company called Sapient after I came out of graduate school. And I had the hypothesis about nine years ago, Jess, of connecting strategy to culture. I was always haunted by the phrase that culture eats strategy for breakfast, which is supposedly tied to Peter Drucker. I have found zero evidence, by the way, that Peter Drucker ever said that. There's evidence he might have said it to the CEO of Ford Motor Company. But whether he said it or not, I think it sounds like something Peter Drucker would have said. And to put it lightly, I kind of meditated on the two overlapping circles of strategy and culture. And I kept thinking to myself, what could what would it take to build a company that would connect the two of them intuitively? Nine years later, we have a confirmed call through we're based out of Washington and we service clients around the country and we work with boards and C-suites in, in incredible, wonderful work to help to align them around clear-minded strategy, strategy I define as a choice, and to connect it to the norms, values, and behaviors and assumptions, which is inside the firm that I've learned also that you can measure that. So that's a little bit about me and my background. What brought me to the latest book, Gerald Zimmerman was my mentor and one of the one of the leading lights at the University of Rochester Simon School of Business. When you say Simon School of Business, you're talking, you might as well say the word microeconomics, Jess, as soon as you say that. And I was a poet before I showed up at that graduate school and very grateful to spend time with Zimmerman and other giants like Cliff Smith and, and Jim Brinkley. And Jerry, I brought in on a project for one of my clients a few years ago. He helped me with it and he told me he was working on something. And I said, what are you working on? And he said, I'm studying the longest lasting groups uh, of organizations that allow last Goldman Sachs and Google. And I said, who's that? 
he said, I'm studying mobsters and, you know, come on, man, I'm a sucker for mobster movies, Jess. So I, I was in and we had an amazing back and forth for a couple of years to get it out the door. Wow, that's fun. You know, we, we get, you know, a ton of authors on the show and then we get many, many more trying to get on the show, right? And it's just such a fun premise. I was like, those guys got to have something interesting to say. We got to have, we got to have them on. And it's interesting because it's kind of like an amoral look of like, hey, what if we said it? I mean, just my impression of it, but the fascination with it is like, hey, what if we set aside whether we agree with their morals and we look at, are there things, you know, are there, are there successful principles worth, worth stealing from it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Is that, is that fair? Or how would you? It's completely fair. I mean, I, I was drawn to it because I wanted to understand sort of the distillation of the cultures of these organizations. And I'll be very open with you. When I, you know, when I first started reading it, I thought to myself, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't feel right. You're, you're, you're studying people who in the book, we clearly say this, they value immorality. That's something, that's a value. I mean, that's one of the core values of these groups. I've never worked for an organization that values immorality. And yet there's something that is unbelievable about how we used, we, we were very intentional in the word relentless in the sense of how these organizations are able to perpetuate, they're able to keep alignment. And I think the big setup for the book, Jess, uh, you know, because our, our audience is lawful leaders and lawful managers, I guess I, I would assume some mobsters will read the book, but uh, they're pretty busy working on the next thing, but we're, we're going for the lawful folks. But the tension that we wanted to set up was not different for them, the mobsters, as it is for any other uh, organization, which is how do you how do you take people who are generally self-interested? And we are, you and I are self-interested people before we show up at the firm, any firm. And how do you take one, 10, 50, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000 people? And how do you align them towards a common strategy? And then how do you take it to the next level to operationalize that strategy? So it was unbelievable to think about it. We did um, spend some time, by the way, with a few prosecutors who were willing to speak to us off the record. Source material for this was mostly, that's why we call it a forensic view. We didn't spend a lot of time with the mobsters themselves, but my goodness, these folks write incredible books. They leave incredible stories. But we also did want to validate from the lawmaker's perspective and the prosecutor's perspective, and we had a few folks that were generous to give us some off-the-record reviews, what was their sense of their respect to these folks? And the answer was incredible. I mean, in another life, in another set of cards dealt their way, they could have been a Jess Larson, right? And they could have been running multiple companies, but the intrinsic way that they go about their craft and why they were attracted to these platforms has a lot to do with their personal stories. I mean, we, you and I don't get to choose who we're born into. And some, and a lot of it's also economics that drives it too, including when we get into groups like the Bloods and the Crips too. The absence I told, I was telling Jerry and I were talking about it the other day, the story of family and the story of belonging is really kind of a meta piece of this because we all have a craving to belong in an organization, to feel like we fit in, uh, to feel like our, our work has meaning. And I don't think these groups have any, any less of it. So a topic I never imagined, but uh, when Jerry Zimmerman put it in, into my inbox in an early draft, I, I was hooked. I was, I was ready to go. You know, one of the guys who I've got respect for that's actually coming back on the show, he's our first episode and he, he was the head of the high-risk search warrant team for Kansas City PD when they were the number three murder city in the country. 
and he's in there for a long time. So basically his team gets called out if they're expecting if they're expecting guns and to potentially get shot at. He's the he's the upper level SWAT team that gets called on those ones, right? And it's interesting his approach of like, you know, can bringing understanding to law enforcement be helpful without condoning actions? He's like, you know, can I look at this gangbanger and go without condoning choices that he's made? Can I understand how if you've never met your dad and your mom's strung out on drugs and you sleep in the you sleep in the bathtub sometimes because of the drive-bys because the bathtub will keep you safe, right? Can I understand why it might feel attractive to join a gang that would help you feel safe? You know, don't I don't endorse the choice, I don't condone the choice, but can I understand how that happens, right? And he felt like it makes him a better cop to to treat these people like people and you know, think about them human to human instead of the instead of objectifying them, you know? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, look, these are folks that, you know, they're they're attracted to a cause and, and, and different groups here. I think about the rituals. One of the things, Jerry and I, when we stepped back, when we started to think about the commonalities they had culturally, there's incredible onboarding rituals, Jess, that these organizations go through uh, to vet those who are in their organizations. No one does it better than the mafia. And, you know, Jerry and I were talking and I remember he said to me at one point, he said, how, how hard is it to get into your company? And I said, oh, it's really hard. And I was so proud of our process. And, you know, we give these tests and, you know, we do the reference checks and we do lots of interviews. And, you know, I was sort of, I was just self-assured there. And he made the point to me as we started looking at it to become a made man in the mafia, just how about a nine to 11 year interview process, right? How's that, <laughs> right? That, that is a long period of initiation. And what you're doing, I would not I would not advise that to our lawful leaders, by the way. None of us would run a company if we had nine years before we hired the first employee. But, you know, given how precious knowledge workers are, given how precious specific knowledge is, isn't it amazing to think about slowing that hiring process down a little bit, right, and really getting to know them? We talk about, you know, there's a big debate in culture. Do you hire for cultural fit? Or do you hire because, Jess, you have a different set of norms, values, and behaviors than I'm used to? Do you let in the antibodies of something new? Or do you sort of seek to have the same antibodies? And there's a big debate about that. I'm not sure that I, I necessarily agree with one pathway or another. But with these groups, they're unapologetic in thinking about and declaring what they value. I mean, I, I'm going to read you off a little list here because I just I've been, I've been compiling the, these kind of notes as we get ready for, to talk about the book. They value steadfastness, resourcefulness, loyalty, and immorality, right? So that's the hard one to come back to is the valuation of immorality. But look at loyalty. I mean, we have companies now that have high turnover. You and I see it where the average tenure, and there's a lot of concepts around the millennial generation and whether or not they have, you know, they've, they're going to want to change jobs very often. That, that loyalty to an organization comes at a high cost to leaders, because when you lose one employee after training them, onboarding them, and giving them specific knowledge, to have them walk out the out of the firm, this is incredibly high. And in these organizations, you know, we we go over to the the, the you know the Hell's Angels, loyalty, toughness, respect, and brotherhood. So I guess I just call it out to say I watch a lot of organizations culturally declare core values. And my dear friend Colonel David Sutherland, who helped the United States Army in the 1980s to imagine their core values. He said they're either a plaque on the wall or they're in your head and your heart. And the military does it incredibly well to put them in your head and your heart. I think these groups do an, an extraordinary job at honing in and declaring what they stand for, taking the long view, 
and intentionally in the interviewing process and onboarding process, really standing up for the values that they that they say. And that comes with, you know, not just economic remuneration, which we certainly comment on in the book, but it comes with this idea of being seen, being heard, being validated. And frankly, my commercial, our commercial leaders can learn a lot about how these organizations recognize their employees to keep them so loyal. That's one of the reasons why I was attracted to this project. You know, it's fascinating. With the last 10 years that we've been working on counter-trafficking at our at child rescue, you know, combating child trafficking and child exploitation. It's it's interesting to really, in some ways, think about some groups as our enemy, like fully our enemy. And yet it's almost like, you know, it's hard for anybody to say anything good about the Nazis, right? But yet when you look at those World War II commanders is they talked about somebody like Rommel, right? And they're like, man, that guy was an amazing tactician. I hate him. I want to kill him. But, but you know, he, he, was, he was extremely good at the skill of war. And we actually have, there's some things we could learn from him, right? Even mm-hmm. though we'd like to kill him, you know, it's such an interesting dichotomy, right? Like I look at, for us, you know, in the, in the world of counter-trafficking, you've got, you know, everything from, you know, family members renting out a kid to what we might think of traditional pimping to more the organized, you know, Bloods and Crips to, you know, Hells Angels, this kind of, you know, more organized to all the way to like transnational crime. Like, you know, the Russian mafia is some of the most prolific traffickers in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And these guys are good at their sport. I, I, want, I want them all in jail, but they're good at their sport. They, like when law enforcement gets too close, like, you know, Crips or people like that, when they're trafficking kids in our country, they'll move them in triangles. Like they'll go, you know, LA, LA, Salt Lake, Seattle. So that that when the LA cops get too close, they'll move them. They'll go out to Vegas. They'll go out to Salt Lake up the I-15. And they they move every like three weeks in order, because they know law enforcement, it's going to take a while for them to build a case. And cops in our country are terrible at talking across the border. And so, you know, they can just drive three hours over and there's no case against them, right? And the transnational guys, I mean, they will take a kid from Moldova and they'll go from London to Israel to Brighton Beach, Florida. And I mean, they're doing it, into, you know, let alone cross state lines, they're cross international lines. And they figured out how to use our rules against us. I mean, like the, the, the tactical intelligence to pull that off is, is something that, you know, rather than throw our hands up and go, oh, that's not my jurisdiction. Like these guys could care less about jurisdiction. They're going to win, you know, like. That, that, that is, you know, an, an aspect of it. And by the way, just to be clear, we, we never celebrate in the book ever the, you know, the, the drugs that these organizations push or the nefarious products. We're, we're, not, we're not there to talk about it, but we are amazed by their resourcefulness. That's what you're talking about. It was interesting, General McChrystal, I've been very lucky, I've had some interactions with General Stanley McChrystal, and he read the book in four days and he came back. He's a pretty busy man running a great company. And it didn't shock me that his his review and blurb back to us was, you know, this is a man who spent his entire life in the military studying enemies who, you know, that's that's what he's trained to do. If you don't respect your enemy and you don't look at them and say, you know, yes, these are not people morally I'd wish to celebrate at all, but what can I learn from them? What can I learn from them? You use Rommel, by the way, as an example earlier. I'll share a little story with you. I, In my first book, I got to know General Petraeus and General Mattis very well. And General Mattis is just an incredible insight. And I, I had the great fortune one time to bring him over to a tour of the Library of Congress. And they put out all the stops for him, Jess to show him every piece of memorabilia that our military has there 
inside our Library of Congress. And one of the things that absolutely blew his mind the most was Rommel's maps. We have a copy of Rommel's maps sitting on Capitol Hill in the 600 miles of content underneath the Library of Congress. And I remember him saying that Rommel's maps were his bedside reading, that you don't go into Iraq and take over a country. And by the way, is there anything about Rommel that, you know, that James Mattis, who I think is an extraordinary American and a man of virtue? No. But what he realized was the technical capability. The, these maps, by the way, to, to see them, you couldn't imagine someone doing this without a spy satellite. There were no satellites, Jess, back then. So there's this idea. I also will just put in the room here that I taught my company a, a methodology years ago that really changed a lot of our thinking, and it's called appreciative inquiry. And appreciative inquiry asks the question, you know, can we, what can we learn? What's right about something, even if it's terrible, right? And the, the proctor who taught us the conversation, she put up on the, on the whiteboard terrorism. She just put the word terrorism up there. And we spoke for 15 minutes as a group about what we hated about terrorism. And then she asked the opposite question, Jeff. She asked this question. She said, what's right and good about terrorism? Now, after you calm down your amygdala, because you just can't believe that someone had the audacity to ask you that, you start to think about terrorism in a different way. Not that you're celebrating the ism, but what she got us thinking about was the after effects of terrorism and how it brings people together. The unbelievable united way that countries are able to force out terrorists who infiltrate, infiltrate their communities and take over their psyches. So on one side of the board is fear. On the other side of the board, we actually try to understand what does terrorism do that's good. And what she made, she made a point that I never forgot, which was now, if you're trying to defeat terrorism and you want to do some innovation and ideation, you could look at the list of the negatives and come up with, we're going to have all sorts of, you know, helicopters, we're going to have all sorts of penalties, we're going to have all sorts of attacks. And there's, and that's noble. But the other side of it, we started thinking about social networks. We started thinking about how do you infiltrate educational systems earlier? How do you change the psyche and behavior of groups of people? So our ideation, I would argue, was more rich on the appreciative side. Again, never celebrating the vice. That's not what we're talking about. But this level of problem solving, of even appreciating, you know, to McChrystal's point, your enemy, here we're looking at mobsters and saying, how do these people do it? How do they survive so long without using banks, without using traditional communications vehicles, without using the banking system the way you and I can? I mean, you and I are, are able to do that through the front door. They do everything through the back door. In a, in a sense, this was a microeconomic and cultural view using appreciative inquiry is what we did. Interesting. Well, I, I kind of want to shift gears. One of the things that we're going to be focusing on this year coming up is I'm going to be asking a lot of our guests uh, advice for, you know, your background, your experience, thinking about business owners who want to be able to build a more sellable company or who want to be able to get the most when they sell their company, you know, because we get taught so much about how to increase revenue, how to increase sales. How, you know, we're constantly being talked about that as business owners, but we're not always talked about what's going to make somebody want to buy us versus our competitor, you know, whenever we want to transition to the next adventure in life. Right. And we're not often talked about what are the, what are the levers, the mergers and acquisitions metrics that give my company a bigger multiple or a smaller multiple, you know, I, I did get to work in mergers and acquisitions at Citigroup 15 years ago, and I got to, you know, start to learn what some of those things are, but I'm interested with all the different people that you've worked with over the years and your experience, 
when you think about what you've specialized in, if you had advice for business owners in how to make their business more attractive to a potential acquirer, what's what's one of the levers you'd be advising them on? That's probably not going to shock you that I'll I'll say focusing on building a constructive culture. And I use that word constructive very, very intentionally. There's all sorts of drags on a culture. Those drags could be passive drags, defensive drags. Another word that we use of a drag on a culture is entropy. But why would I have an entrepreneur focus on culture? My bias, Jess, is that the only differentiated thing about most companies today, let's pick on, I'll pick, I love picking on uh, the banks. You know, they have incredible derivative products. They have incredible ability to go to capital markets. So does 10 other banks. What makes them unique? What makes them unique within it and the edge of the innovation is how when one, two, three, or five employees are left alone, how they innovate, how they talk to one another, how they collaborate. In other words, what are the norms that have been established that make that organization want to see the customer to make sure that the employee are able to show up to delight the customer? So for me, if I think about giving advice to an entrepreneur as they're trying to drive up valuation, and by the way, the evidence is in that culture is not only what I suggested is as a differentiator, but when you overpay for my company, Jeff, Jess, and you say, well, my goodness, Daniel got a multiple that was outside the bounds of what was said on a spreadsheet. And all of a sudden you have to take on that onto your balance sheet. I'd argue that what, your, what you priced in was the present value of the culture uh, as much as you priced in the present value of the products and services that are intuitive and, and intrinsic to the firm. So, you know, what do you do if you're an entrepreneur? First of all, why does your firm exist? Why does anyone care? The vision, vision, vision. I'm spending a lot of time these days thinking about vision and understanding why it's so important to galvanize a workforce. The values or norms and the, or some people call it the ethos, pick your, pick your tonic. But it's that culture that when you come over to the next, if someone acquires you, you want to reveal in that pitch book, there better be some slides. And by the way, the slides are human beings talking about what's differentiated behaviorally about your firm, because you want to show the acquired entity. If you bring me in, we're going to bring this, we're going to bring curiosity. Curiosity is a, something my firm values a lot. We call it persistent curiosity. I want you to just constantly be thinking about how can we improve? How can we make it better? If you want to acquire my firm, and that's a superpower that you don't have, I could bring that to you. And I think you'll value that. So I'm not a product guy. I've been running services company my, my whole life. But to me, focusing on and giving management attention to the culture, last thing I'll say here as we just, as I close the riff out, is just this idea that the leadership team has to care demonstrably about this, Jess. If the leadership team doesn't model the norms, values, and behaviors of the best of what the company stands for, there's no chance that the junior folks down in San Diego are going to be valuing it. We've never seen an organization outperform normatively and behaviorally the function or dysfunction of a leadership team. So that idea of an ethos of ensuring you, you know what the North Star is within your culture, the leadership team modeling it from the top, I've just given hopefully some CEOs a hell of a pitch deck because that's the intuitive I would say, in, and we call it intangible, it's intangible until it's on your balance sheet because I've made it uh, an asset on your balance sheet in an acquisition. 
You know, I think about, as you talk there, it makes me think about the Richard Branson quotes about, you know, at Virgin customers don't come first at, you know, we think first about our employees, because if you take care of your employees, you'll your employees will take care of your customers. And you think about like the organizations that that really have become customer obsessed in a way that they're not abusing their own staff. And you look at somebody like Zappos, right? Why does Jeff Bezos pay a billion dollars for a shoe for a shoe company, right? Basically a website for selling shoes. Like that's a duplicatable thing, a website that stocks shoes, right? Well, for everybody who's ever gone and done one of those culture tours at Zappos, that place feels different and the employees feel it. Hence the reason people want to work there. The customers feel it. Hence the reason they have this like absurd loyalty, right? Like, you, you know, Warren Buffett's always talking about having a moat around your castle. Like what's defensible about your business? Well, I got to tell you, man, <laughs> offering somebody else's shoes online <laughs> for a price, not, not inherently, a, you know, a moat with high walls around that castle, right? right? And yet, you know, I'm sure they have some pricing power. I'm sure they have some expertise, but Again, tactical things that are not necessarily unduplicatable, but you know, the kind of place where people, like when you have an opening, you get huge amounts of people trying to get in. And this is not a six figure, a six figure investment banking job. This is a, you know, slightly above minimum wage. You know, this is a, this is a very moderate kind of job. And yet they've got absurd numbers of applicants for a job like that. And, you know, those people know what they're about and everybody who works there knows what they're about, right? You nailed it. I, the Zappos is an incredible example and very sad to hear of the passing of their incredible founder. I learned a lot from reading it. And I, I, was, I was as astounded as you, right? I mean, I, you know, I've had, I, I think I've bought at least one pair of shoes from, from Zappos, but what precedes it is as soon as you say the word Zappos, it's sort of Pavlovian, right? Customer satisfaction, customer centricity, right? Well, where does that come from? What, you know? The, the amount of time that Tony and his leadership team had to spend to locate and say, no, 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 no. We're, we're not designing a shoe company. We're designing a customer service platform that happens to sell shoes, right? And all of a sudden, what's going to galvanize us is what? Is it's, it's a credo. It's a set of norms. And one of those norms, right? You know, the, this idea that the customer is right, speed in terms of the customer's needs. So when he said that he was going to put the customer at the center of his business and design around it, I believed him. And here he is. I mean, the company outlasts him. And what I would, I'm right there with you. Everything that he did and the reason he commanded the valuation that he did, I do not believe that the present values of the shoes, of rubber, of, of, of whatever the thing, you know, cloth, wool, whatever you make a shoe out of. I, I don't believe the present value of the shoe in the box, even with the branding, was what was the acquired entity there. It was this idea of, an, of a customer-centric platform that just happened to sell excellent shoes. And I'll close with this. I'll say, you know, this intersection between the employee experience and the customer experience, EX and CX, Ginger Harded from Southwest Airlines is someone who we've studied and we've gotten to know, and, and I'm giving a talk tomorrow to a bunch of CEOs. And she had this haunting quote to me in the context of COVID-19, and it's very similar to Richard Branson as well. She said, only when employees feel safe and heard can they begin to make customers feel the same way. What a beautiful idea that is, right? That's sort of Maslow level one, right? And I and I bring it up. I, I don't know, you know, should you focus on the customer? Should you focus on the employees? Let's just assume that that's a personal journey for every CEO to discover. I think you'll eventually discover you got to get it right by the employees. But that intersection between what the customer experiences and how they touch your culture, 
I think it is the imperative. I think it's the differentiator. I think it drives up valuation. I know it drives up valuation. Ask Tony Hirsch and ask all these other entrepreneurs that have sold their platforms that were way more than the sum of their parts at a, at a code level or at a cost of goods sold level. It was the present value of a constructive culture that I think is what was being acquired. Yeah, it's, it's interesting combination there. And, you know, I guess I, my next question would be thinking about your industry. You know, I, I came out of finance and, and took a, took a detour when I was a director for a, a, a boutique consulting firm out here called the Arbinger Institute and taught leadership classes to, you know, Navy SEALs and CIA guys and sales teams at Microsoft and Oracle and all this stuff. And, and then, you know, quit, started my own. And, and that's the side of our business. It does the, you know, help CEOs sell their companies and does operational excellence. And, my question for you with, with your observation, your experience in the industry is, you know, services businesses are not typically known for being highly sellable and getting great multiples on the back end. As you look at your years in the industry, folks who have been able to sell a consulting firm or take it public or sell it to the employees or things like this and, and been able to have a, an exit other than shutting it down. What do you think that those firms did right? Uh, or or on the other side, guys who they weren't able to sell the business at the end, what do you think that they missed? It's a great, wonderful and very specific question. I agree with you. Multiples on services industries tend to be low. The ones that get it right, what do they get right? And drive up a higher valuation. I think about Clay Christensen and I think about what problem does your product or service solve for the customer? And what I've watched when I've watched services companies ex- exit what I see is usually a focus that they have around solving a particular type of customer problem. In the healthcare industry, I've, I've seen you know, consulting firms rise up around this idea of they're going to chase what they call the revenue cycle. No one is going to help hospitals to imagine how to make sure that they can extract every bit of rent, if you will. I'm using that in an economic context from sitting across all of the unbelievable thousands of transactions that we have to do. That's a very specific consulting firm to build, just one around a revenue cycle. And I've seen companies go there. I think the verticalization, I think when you focus in on an industry and you are able to have speed to impact with the leaders much quicker, we have a huge amount of trade associations in my company. We've been in, we've been very privileged to be in a lot of rooms with a lot of boards of directors of doctor-driven trade associations. Jess, if someone said to me, "What's why is through worth one more dollar? That's very specific knowledge that we have. Very significant experience. I mean, we're way past 10,000 hours helping doctors to imagine the future of a profession. So that comes with a choice because in consulting, you know, it's uh, it's there's no balance sheet for most companies to say, I'm going to spend X amount of money on consulting this year. So it's a game where you have to hustle. You have to be very valuable. It's highly competitive. But I'd say for the folks in my industry that I've watched who've had exits that I think command a, a premium, they've done it because of an unbelievable focus on a vertical and then even within it to focus on problems that customers wanted to have solved over and over with a really good cost of goods sold, right? It's high, it's high cost because it's, I mean, these are talented labor, right? These are talented people I have to attract and the marketplace is very fluid, but it's focused and it's the idea that we're not just going to be diffuse in generalists in our service. We're going to be applied and narrow. And I'll be honest, I mean, it's I'm nine years in as owning a consulting firm. Early on, you go to where the work is, where the money is. And over time, I've learned focus, focus, focus has been the most valuable thing. I'm not ready to exit just yet, Jess, but 
that's what I've observed in my com my compatriots and other consulting firms and other founders. And it's the advice I'm giving myself, which is hasn't served me wrong. And it's the same advice, by the way, I give my 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 clients, which is strategy without focus is hallucination. You're not gonna you're not gonna create value, let alone valuation. You know, my my suspicion is that there's also a level of thinking that has to go into it that is like important but not urgent. You know, I think that specialization is incredible, right? Like that that supply and demand factor. Like, you know, if somebody can buy, if somebody can buy the an ability that is not common, right? That that's obviously going to be something that commands a premium. And you think about like how many consulting firms that don't have something like that, that sell at, you know, 1x revenue or 2x revenue or something like that, right? And yet, you know, big consulting firms, you look, you know, in Washington, D.C., out there with you guys, you look at FTI Consulting, right? They're like $3.9 billion company. They're, the, the stock market is valuing them at 22 times their earnings today, right? And so there's obviously not an industry barrier, you know, consulting industry services, even though they're not as commonly something that can create a great multiple, right? It's not like they're structurally, structurally impossible to be able to do that if people like FTI are doing it, right? right. And yet you think about you think about the cultures, like I think about same thing with law firms and some of these places where it, it can often attract really high achieving, but maybe somewhat individualistic personality types, right? Where it can be about me and my success, you know? And, you know, sharing best practices and systemizing the processes and having all the junior people be able to do what I can do might actually threaten my sense of self-worth. You know, like, well, will I be as valuable or will I be as in demand if all of a sudden everybody in the firm can do what I do or things like this, right? It seems like a headwind against build, building a, an organization that, you know, can be, can duplicate and scale and sell for multiple. Any, any reaction to some of that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really insightful. And it makes me think about why, why do people, why do leaders hire consulting firms? You know, what, what problem are you solving, right? What, what do you, what is it being achieved? Usually they ask me for a strategy or they'll ask me for, you know, you have contractual deliverables, but one of the things I think that leaders value is, you know, the there's no bureaucracy in my company once we get a problem to solve for a client, right? We put the client in the center of it. We ask them a set of Socratic questions. We follow a methodology. We do a lot of one of the, again, I think this is a cultural piece, Jess. You know, we early on when I started the company, I've been exposed to improv comedy and I wanted to learn it because of the technique of yes and. This idea of expansive dialogue versus reductive dialogue. You need both. But expansive dialogue is really important in problem solving, right? Because you, you want to increase the probabilities. That's why I did appreciative inquiry, because I wanted to take the top of the aperture and make it 16 times wider. And it's just interesting. And that technique, yes, and we teach it very quickly. It's kind of fun to be in a boardroom with a group of oncologists, for example, and teaching them how to use yes, and. I teach them that because as soon as you use the word but, when I say but, it means no to you. It shuts down possibility. And so I think about what consulting, for what comparative advantage do consulting firms have? I think they have, you know, intelligence is probably not it. I think it's the norms and behaviors of the teams of putting the customer at the center of the problem and then enabling people to have a process where they can discover. My first book that I wrote was about this topic of reflective thinking. And as a strategist at heart and someone that works on culture, 
I also think you're you're helping, we're helping our clients to create moments of reflection. Jess, this is crazy what's going on right now, right? You and I have no time to think. Busyness subsumes us, Zoom meeting after Zoom meeting. And even in this environment, when we've had to work remotely, I think we bring economies of reflection to our clients and we shine a light on them. And I, I'll, I'll simplify the world of, of strategy consultants, at least into two dimensions. One, there's strategy consultants that you hire because Jess and his team are gonna know how to value that property. Should we buy the factory? And they're gonna hand me a deck. And by the way, that's noble and important work. Let's do that work. There's another type of consultant that is more like my firm, which is that we believe the answer to the problem sits in the consciousness of the leadership team of an organization. And if you believe the latter, then you have to show up to that meeting with a lot of humility, with a low self-orientation, and you've got to be willing to make sure Jess feels heard as one contributor to the problem, yes, and he's gonna build off of his colleagues. Does that mean we're afraid of spreadsheets? And no, we'll bring the data. We're gonna play back the story of change that you're trying to make. But I just believe the reason why consulting firms, uh, they've talked about the demise of our industry for quite a while, I, I don't see it happening. And I think it's because we have the ability sometimes to sprint, to create economies of thinking and to be respectful to leaders who don't necessarily need to insource that skill all the time too, by the way. They need to execute the heck out of it. And you know, we stay around to activate our strategies with our consultant, with our clients, but we're not there for seven, nine years. That's, that's the work to come. So what you said resonates a lot. And I also think about this individual versus group. You know, When you're in a consulting firm, the, the, the faster you realize that I'm a smart guy, but that's not the currency, man. You and I are way smarter together than I am alone. You and I, plus three other people in the room, and especially with more diverse, equitable, and inclusive groups, the evidence is in. We will solve the problem faster if we're open-minded and we're able to collaborate vertically and horizontally. So I'll pause there. You know, there's so much good stuff in what you said. And it's making me think like, you know, the guys who, my, the, my consultants that work for me on our, at, at Greystoke Advisors, the operational excellence team, right? You know, the guy who teaches my classes there, who, who's like our head, our head consultant, right? You know, he spent four years doing it at Ford, and then he spent 35 years doing it at GE, finishes his career in charge of 85 aerospace plants, all of their continuous improvement for 85 aerospace plants for GE. Now he teaches in a master's degree program at Ohio State and then teaches for us, right? And I, as you're talking, I was thinking, you know, he is such a top level subject matter expert that you know, Air Canada and Charles Schwab and Stanford University and all these people send their employees out to come get trained by us, right? And and it makes me think like, but how how little time have we spent thinking about the duplication of that, right? Like if we if we if the business is is required to have folks as good as Rick Guba from our team, you know what I mean? That's a pretty small pool. Do you know what I mean? Our ability to duplicate if that's a requirement. And so it, the question it makes me think is, and I'd love your insight on this is, and it's not just Rick, like, let's go the other direction. Like I'm the guy that gets pulled in when it's a CEO who he's saying he wants to get extra millions when he sells the company. And so, you know, having been a private equity CEO who sat on the other side of the table, they think that I could probably give them some ideas, right? Well, crap, if our business can only grow by hiring other former private equity CEOs, this is going to be a small practice, Right. <laughs> So I'm interested in any thoughts of like, where in a way we are selling expertise. And I don't think consulting is ever going to go away because 
there's always going to be unique expertise that is not going to want to become your full-time employee that you actually don't need full-time and you are willing to pay a premium for that help right now, right? But my question for you is, as business owners who want to create a more duplicatable business that could be scalable, that could be sellable, how can we how can we help our experts want to want to systemize more and want to have like be in the business of selling a pros- selling a process instead of just selling this guy who, by the way, is going to quit on me someday, right? Or start it, or like either quit and retire or quit and start his own firm or something, right? I, 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 you've just hit at the conundrum of all, you know, emerging small consultancies that aspire to be medium or to be large. Again, I, I think I'd come back to a couple of things. If you have a core ethos there, if you have a set of norms and behaviors that are consistent, I think you will attract in that next generation. And that's a Culture as a process there means you have to pay attention to it. We use a simple framework from one of our partners, a company called Intellivin, uses a very, very simple diagnostic, but very decidedly excellent way to look at any company. Every company does three things. It sells, it does, and it grows. Sell, do, grow. Sell, do, grow. So for leaders, you know, you have to have a repeatable way to acquire customers, to have your brand out there, to be known. You know, Mark Cuban haunts me every day. If you don't have a repeatable way to acquire customers, you have a hobby, not a company, he said. Uh, and I think <laughs> I have not heard that quote. That is uh, such a good quote. Let's do it one more time because that quote is awesome. Oh, it's awesome. And it's frightening, right? If you don't have a repeatable way, and I'm paraphrasing here, Mark Cuban, if you're listening in, to acquire companies, you have a hobby. You don't have a company. So on sell, that means you are intentional about where you target where you find them uh, and and how to acquire. And this marketplace has changed dramatically for consulting right now, right? In COVID-19. Then you have to do, Jess. I mean, the, you, you say, what? how do you how do you create something repeatable? You, you know, you've got to be able to deliver consistently for customers over a period of time. We're really proud. We've got a 100% referral rate from our CEOs. That's, that's who hires us to do what we do. We haven't done perfect work. I'm not going to be telling you that we've nailed every deliverable, every meeting. I mean, for goodness sake, we... We have imperfections, but the trend line has been wildly consistent and our clients come back to us, by the way. Sometimes we're not in continuous performance with them. So at a do level, you have to have a defensible set of standards, a defensible approach to quality and a really good client experience, by the way. You got to, you know, consulting is an experience and go back to what I said about the two types of consultants there. I mean, we come at this with low self-orientation and a bit of humility and a lot of technique because I believe the answer lies within you. So that means I'm going to be a great listener. I'm going to be very patient. I'm going to teach you techniques that I think will be generative in dialogue. And when you get on the lines with us or in back in rooms with us, we don't waste your time. I mean, we help you to get to speed to product pretty quickly and then grow. Grow is the haunting side of a business, right? It's, it's how do we grow our practices, our processes? How do we acquire the next 25 people that, you know, kind of are like us and are better than us? How do we think about an exit, right? Someday grow as a bucket of never. And how do we gain the next level of capital? How do we withstand a shock? How do we, how do we, how do we grow as an enormous bucket? And a lot of the grow side sits with our CEO. So that framework of sell, do, grow has served us well to whether we're advising, you know, Goldman Sachs hasn't called me up recently to, to ask my advice on running the firm there. But if I walked into Goldman Sachs, that would be in my consciousness as one of the analytics to tear it apart because every firm has to do that. My local library has to sell, do, and grow in order to be relevant. So it's been a helpful, at least a visual. And for consulting firms, 
you got to get all three of them right consistently over time in order to be differentiated. You know, when you think about a great customer experience, right? That's great for repeat business and it's great for referrals, but it's so often something that strangers just looking at websites can't can't get that feeling, you know? When you think about shooting videos or other ways of telling customer stories and and having, you know, having a stranger recognize that customer experience. Are there firms that you've seen do that well? Or do you have any ideas on people in the services space who, who want people that don't have any context, they don't know any of your other clients, but for some reason they've bumped into you, how to help them understand everybody claims to have a great customer experience, but here's the level you can expect with us. It's a, it's a super thoughtful question, man. I, I, I really appreciate how you, how you think. I'll, I'll toot the horn of my company. Look, consulting in a, as soon as I get an inbound inquiry from someone who has a problem, here's our, here's our orientation. We will give you our best advice once we unpack what your need is, regardless of whether you hire us. That's that's the social contract, honestly. And just I've had clients this year that have come to us with some things that I can solve for them, and there's some things that I can't solve for them. But that idea, low self-orientation of coming in and saying, here's what I heard you say. You want to talk about a customer experience? You know how cathartic it is to sit with another human being and say, here's what I think I heard you just say? I mean, it's amazing. It's how you build relationships. So to us, the customer experience, it, whether we work, whether we win and we call it earning the right, whether we earn the right to work with you or not, it begins in those first sets of conversations where I've got a, not, I don't want to sell to you. I don't. I mean, if I get on the phone and I'm selling a service to you, that means I'm not listening to you. If I'm not listening to you, that means I'm not uncovering your need. And by the way, once I hone in on the need, if you ask me, you know, Daniel, can you help me? to make, you know, I want to open up a smoothie company in San Diego. I can't help you with that, Jess. If you help me, if you say- I love me, smoothies though. I love <laughs> smoothies too, but I don't, I don't know much about deploying smoothie machines. Now, if you ask me, can I help you to think into and you're bored how to create the most differentiated smoothie company in the world and to get 10, 20 people aligned? Now I'm, now I'm in. And by the way, I'm solving a problem for you there. Alignment is a problem I believe we have to show up to solve. You know, there's a word you've said a few times that I, I keep feeling like is like the golden nugget of this conversation for me. And it's back to that differentiation. You know, I think the kind of people that run consulting firms and other services firms, it's typically because you've been a high achiever at whatever you did. That's why your expertise is worth, you know, is worth what people will pay for it, right? And yet there can be such temptations to take what feels like easy money just outside of what you say your scope is, you know? Like, like you said, at first, the small business has got to take whatever it takes to, to eat. You know what I mean? Like you probably got to take it all. Yeah. But I guess my question is, when you think about this, this idea of the unique ability, the like, what is our specialty that others can't do, right? I think 99.9% .9 of consulting owners, you know, consulting firm owners that you and I could call today would, would have this ready-made this ready-made list of all the reasons why they're so different. And nobody's like them. How's like, oh, here's why we're so special, right? And yet I would say of like the general buyer population, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that consulting firms feel that different to a lot of the buyers. You know, the CEO spent a lot of time telling themselves, oh, how special I am, right? But when you think about both having a deep specialty that is unique and having the customer realize it before they've talked to you, you know, off the website, off your LinkedIn, off whatever. Any, any thoughts about going deeper and not just in your own mind, in the customer mind? 
Yeah. I mean, look, uh, the number one source of my business for my whole career, even when I had a larger marketing mechanism behind me is referrals and referrals is you not taking my word for it. By the way, I have to deliver in the sales cycle. I have to deliver in whatever work that I'm doing for you. But a referral is a consumer of your product saying, this is what I experienced. And we do spend time, by the way, on an, on an annual basis, asking our clients, what do they value about us? What, what, mm. what stands out? We hear words and patterns that repeat themselves. You know, First of all, how prepared we are and how anticipatory we are. The techniques are cited a little bit. We, the word provocateur, you guys are really provocative. You really push our thinking. You're not afraid to get into the room and to have some conflict. And we're not inviting conflict, but you can't get to alignment around a strategy without conflict. And if you're not willing to have a constructive way to do that uh, and a process to move it forward, by the way, you got to bring data, you got to bring dialogue to the, to the fore there. So to me, I, I think about, you know, what do I, sometimes we begin, what, what do we want the client to say and to feel at the end of this? Because let's be clear, they're the ones whose brands are on the line here. I mean, my reputation is on the line for an engagement. But when you work for a CEO, these people have very short tenures. They're under massive pressure. They have boards of directors that are extremely complicated. So my empathy, I would just say, has gone up for these leaders in the years since I've become a CEO and I will just say the, their voice and advocacy to the next customer to, for me to meet before I get there, that's gold if they're willing to do it. And so far, so good, Jess. They've been, they've been willing to do it. You know, as you're saying that, it made me realize, yeah, referrals, like word of mouth and referrals is really the key. And what I was getting at probably just needs to confirm it. You know, like somebody's, you know, two, two CEOs are golfing together and the guy's complaining and he says, oh, you know who you got to call? You got to call Daniel, right? Over it through. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I'm hoping that people say, ah, oh, man, I, I really think that I really think I'm going to sell the business within the next five years. And his golfing buddy says, oh, you got to call, you got to call Jess. You got to get, you got to go check out the Greystoke M&A community, right? Mm -hmm. And my website just needs to not screw it up at that point. Do you know what I mean? Like, the stories, the eBooks, the everything we're doing from there, they need to, they need to be consistent with what the referral told them. It needs to like, it needs to add on to what they've already been told, but you know, it probably doesn't need to start the story as often, does it? It doesn't because I really, I really appreciate what you're, what you're saying here. You know, the, the orientation then just is, am I making this about my company or am I making about them and their noble problem? Right. I mean, I, I come at this and I mean, if you're calling me, I mean, we've met in time and space. I think there's some reason why we've met everybody I've ever met. You know, some people I choose not to meet twice, Jess, you're not one of them. I've been really <laughs> enjoying getting to know you, man, but there's, there's a lot of lessons in those with people that, that repel you as well, as well. But when I come at it and some, a leader who's a CEO, who's got pressure on them, if I can be a relief valve for them to listen to them and to help them to reframe it, I mean, the, you get good remuneration in consulting. It's a, it's a good profession, I think. And it's, but to me, it's, it's the unbelievable recognition that my CEOs get. And, you know, they'll give me a call or they'll say, you know, thank you. Thank you for, you know, the way you helped us think that through. That's the joy in my world, right? I mean, you know, I, I'm not the operator. They deserve credit. I mean, it was, it was Teddy Roosevelt, right? Credit deserve, belongs to the man or woman in the arena, to me, I'm in the room with you around the arena for a little while, but make no mistake, my CEOs, they shoulder way more than any consultant and advisor will ever give them. 
I got to give them a good process. I got to give them a good experience. I got to make sure that they're well heard and I got to bring substance to the table. But, you know, there, there has to be a moment where you realize, is the orientation me and my company or is the orientation I am a problem solver for CEOs? I like the latter because it begins with a humble inquiry versus the former that begins with, you know, let's talk about me. <laughs> I don't, we don't like talking about us. We want to talk about you and your problem. Yeah, that's great. Well, can you give everybody, uh, can you give everybody your company website again and, and where's the best places for them to connect with you if they want to follow you or connect with you? Wonderful. I appreciate you putting that in, putting that in there. The name of the company is through www.thruue.com. My personal is danielforrester.com and the name of the new book coming out with my dear mentor, my dear friend, Jerry Zimmerman is called Relentless, the Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices. And we're learning very quickly, Jess, there's only there's a monopoly on selling books in this world, it seems. And it's, it's going to be Amazon that you want to go to. Little anecdote, by the way, Jerry Zimmerman discovered this. We were wondering who owned the word relentless.com. What, what, what do you think happens, Jess, when you type in www.relentless.com? What's your guess? No, no guess. Here's here. Uh, it takes you to Amazon. It was one of Bezos. <laughs> Bezos, before he named it Amazon, he was thinking about the call, calling it relentless, which we found to be incredible coincidence as we, <laughs> as we write the book. So whether you type in relentless.com or amazon.com, you're coming to the same place. And uh, Mr. Bezos still owns the, owns the word relentless.com because that was, that was at one point what he thought his company was going to be. He went with Amazon instead. Well, I'll tell you, one of the classified units in the special operations com- community, one of their uh, informal mantras that gets said a lot is about the relentless pursuit of continuous improvement. Yeah, there is that word has meant a lot. And look at this this pandemic that we're in and the waves and the shocks that we've all absorbed. I feel like uh, all of us have had to be relentless in pursuit of just doing good work here, not just this year. And I, I you know, I don't have any, you know, sort of formula for the future, but I think there's something about persistence and consistency that matters over the long run there. And hopefully the book and some of the insights from today will be a contribution to the many leaders that listen to your, your podcast. Oh, thanks. Well, and listen, tell everybody about your podcast, the Culture Gap podcast, before we go here. Oh, thanks, man. It's been, we've, we've taken a little bit of a break, but it continues to have some really good runs. I've, we've had the pleasure of spending time with an, an unbelievable set of leaders. I mentioned a few in this call today to understand, you know, culturally, how do you get organizations and leadership teams to focus on culture and get the big ideas right? How do you connect strategy to culture? And culture gaps, by the way, refers to this idea that every employee has a view of what's in the current culture of any one of the organizations, Jess, that you're a part of. But when I ask them what they want in the desired culture, there's usually a big gap there. So closing that gap is the discovery and the humility of what employees want. And the more culture gaps you're able to quantify and close, that brings you closer to achieving your strategy. So that's what Culture Gap is about. And we we look forward to 2021 as we get back and uh, share some stories because we've watched uh, from the sidelines here, but we're going to be bringing it back in 2021 to hear more stories from leaders like yourself. Maybe I'm going to have you on there, man. I'd love to. Uh, I'd love to. Yeah. Well, this is great. Thanks again for making time for this. Pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Okay. Bye, everyone.